Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dr. James Woods is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Tennessee, where he teaches psychopharmacology and how to properly make a psychiatric diagnosis. Dr. Woods, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Our topic today is fibromyalgia. However, before we get started, it's important for people to understand that though we might talk about things that will sound like treatment recommendations, any real final treatment recommendation has to be done between the patient and the doctor. Okay, that being said, fibromyalgia was a term first coined in 1981, and the term is from a mixture of Latin and Greek for muscle pain. Interestingly, however, and unlike so many other chronic pain conditions, psychiatry seems to have a disproportionate interest or role in fibromyalgia. Why is this so? That's an excellent question, Dr. Strauss, and in fact, that points to my interest in fibromyalgia. Many of our listeners may ask the question, what is a psychiatrist doing being concerned with fibromyalgia? It actually goes back to my days in primary care medicine. I did primary care medicine for eight years before going back and doing a second residency in psychiatry. At that time, we did treat what you called fibrositis. We would inject what we called trigger points with lidocaine, which didn't help that much, and perhaps put them on a tricyclic antidepressant, which may have helped a little bit. When I went back and started doing my psychiatry residency, I asked my attendings, when are you going to teach me about fibromyalgia? They looked at me and they said, Dr. Woods, what is fibromyalgia? And I said, well, it's the medical illness with one of the largest degrees of psychiatric comorbidity. And indeed, Dr. Strauss, the fibromyalgia patient sees all of us, no matter what our specialty. They see the ENT doctor and come away with a diagnosis of temporomandibular disorder. They see the gastroenterologist and comes out with a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. They see the neurologist and walk away with a diagnosis of chronic headache. They see the urologist and walk away with a diagnosis of interstitial cystitis. They see the OBGYN because there was a high degree of sexual abuse in many of our fibromyalgia patients. They walk away with a diagnosis of chronic pelvic pain, vulvodynia, or vestibulitis. They see the cardiologist and walk away with a diagnosis of mitral valve prolapse or cholecystochondritis. And indeed, they see us in psychiatry, not necessarily complaining of chronic widespread pain of greater than three months duration, but coming in, as we say in the South, with being stressed, depressed, and can't get any rest. Of course, those patients have the comorbidities of major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, fatigue, decreased energy, decreased concentration, and abnormal sleep. It seems to wear many hats. Indeed. That can be confusing at times, clearly, can't it? It certainly can. We had a patient that came into our office a couple of months ago. She thought she had adult attention deficit disorder. Indeed, she had some decreased concentration. But upon careful questioning, which includes a history of chronic widespread pain, we were able to make the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and treat her not only with a combination of medications that would improve her concentration, but also treat her other comorbid psychiatric conditions and indeed her pain itself. So how, how common is it in the general population? That's a great question. It seems to be more common than we first thought. It affects anywhere from 2 to 4% of the U.S. population, depending on our epidemiologic studies, and the prevalence is much more common in women than in men. Probably anywhere from 80 to 90% of our patients with fibromyalgia are women, but that may suggest an increased ability to kind of look for and detect that disease in women. The typical age of onset, anywhere from between 20 to 55 years. We read also that sometimes chronic fatigue syndrome is confused with fibromyalgia. Can you tell me a little bit about the differences between the two? Indeed, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and irritable bowel syndrome 
occupy this netherworld of diagnoses that do not have clear laboratory markers. So many of our primary care physicians might say, well, it can't be a real illness if we don't have any laboratory markers for it. But if we remember back two or 300 years ago, we didn't have any clear laboratory markers for diabetes, but yet people were dying from diabetes. And for us in psychiatry, all we have to do is walk onto the unit of the state psychiatric hospital and see somebody in the midst of an acute manic episode to know that there is a clear biologic process going on, even though that patient's laboratory markers may be totally normal. Chronic fatigue syndrome and irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia, the laboratory markers are essentially normal. But the distinctive caveat is that while chronic fatigue syndrome is mostly concerned with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, while being concerned with chronic fatigue, also brings in the other areas of depression, anxiety, decreased concentration, and chronic widespread pain that the patient with chronic fatigue syndrome probably doesn't have. But this is still, in many people's mind, a very controversial diagnosis. I remember reading somewhere, I wish I could find the exact uh, quote, that Yogi Berra, I think, said it, that I have to believe it to see it. So why is it still such a controversial issue amongst doctors? Because we don't have those markers? Dr. Strauss, that's a that's a great that's a great question and that's a great quote too as well again it's we have to kind of sell many of our prescribers on the disease state itself before we even get to the point of selling them on treatment for the for the disease concept so uh, i think we have some compelling fmri data some compelling genetic studies some compelling family aggregate studies that may prove that this may be a standalone disease fully capable of supporting the diagnostic code 729.1. But at the end of the day, whether they believe or buy into the genetic studies, the fMRI, the neuroimaging studies, the fact remains that regardless of what we call it, we're going to have patients that are coming into our office complaining of depression, anxiety, decreased concentration, fatigue, abnormal sleep patterns, and they are hurting all over. So whether we treat the diagnostic code or the patient, the treatment remains the same. I remember many years ago when we began to seriously look at this as a clinical entity that many of us thought that it was a variant of a sleep disorder because so many people had non-REM sleep or other sleep abnormalities. And we used to think that if we could get people to sleep better, somehow the symptoms would go away. It was a bit too simplistic, but it was the way we were thinking. We certainly understand that abnormal sleep is a critical component of fibromyalgia. Indeed, a psychiatrist, Dr. Leslie Arnold from the University of Cincinnati, published a meta-analysis a couple of years ago of all the randomized clinical trials that have ever been done that have looked at tricyclic antidepressants in the treatment of fibromyalgia. And while Dr. Arnold found that sleep statistically separated, there was no other symptom syndrome that statistically separated in this meta-analysis. So while sleep is necessary for improvement, it is not sufficient for improvement for all of our patients. But it does remain one of our key pivotal parallel, key pivotal points upon making treatment. And that is supported by evidence that shows that alpha-2 delta voltage-gated calcium channel antagonists such as pregabalin or Lyrica or gabapentin or Neurontin or indeed sodium oxabate, which is a drug called Zyrem, all not only improve sleep in patients with fibromyalgia, but also include the comorbid pain. Quetiapine, which is an atypical antipsychotic, was studied, and it did not improve the pain, but again improved the sleep. So one of the key first points that we have to look at if we decide to treat this patient is to improve their sleep, as you pointed out.
many patients who have fibromyalgia will talk about a condition that they call brain fog or fibrofog, and that makes so much of fibromyalgia look like it's just a complicated atypical or perhaps typical depression. So with that, let's go into how one makes a real diagnosis of fibromyalgia and how we separate it from a major depression and then sometimes where the overlaps are. So that's a complicated question. Well, it's, a, it's actually a complicated question, but the answer is relatively simple and is changing. Key elements in the diagnosis of fibromyalgia certainly include a patient history, a physical examination in many cases, but now that's changing. New proposed criteria for the fibromyalgia diagnosis do not include a trigger point or a tender point examination, but we would also include a laboratory evaluation. Of course, the differential diagnosis of fibromyalgia can include rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or hypothyroidism, so we would want to go ahead and get some thyroid function tests and at least a SED rate or erythrocyte sedimentation rate as part of a screening workup. Fibromyalgia is not necessarily a diagnosis of exclusion, and for many years we've used the American College of Rheumatology, or ACR research, classification criteria, which actually involves chronic widespread pain of greater than three months duration. This is not a radiculopathy. This is not a pain that just runs down your leg. And pain is induced by about four kilograms per centimeter of palpation pressure at greater than or equal to 11 out of 18 tender points that are defined anatomically. And this for most people is when the doctor takes his thumb and pushes the tender point in on the person's body and waits for the person to say ouch. Exactly correct. Many listeners may ask the question, well, how much is how much pressure is four kilograms per centimeter? It's actually about the same amount of pressure to make your thumbnail blanch or go white. So if you're pressing with that much pressure, that's the pressure that's required. There are four in the front part up around the collarbone. There are six tender points across the trapezius. It's been my clinical experience that they're most always positive. There are two in the lumbosacral area, two on the greater trochanter in the hip two on the medial fat pads of the knees, and two on the lateral epicondyles of the uh, elbow. And if you have greater than 11 out of 18 trigger points, then you too can have the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. But again, one caveat is, is that's changing. And if you ask many of our nationally known rheumatologists who are generally considered to be the experts on fibromyalgia, however, I think that as psychiatrists or as psychiatric nurse practitioners, we have a, at least as, as much of a vested interest because of the very large psychiatric comorbidity. They will tell you that there's not very much clinical utility in the tender point examination. Are you not going to make the diagnosis, for example, if you only have 10 tender points? Again, so much of this is based on the history and the laboratory workup. So then the laboratory workup, from what I'm reading, is bringing into the doctor's office functional neuroimaging issues, the whole notion of the hippocampus not functioning correctly, much information about neuroendocrine systems. There is even one notion that I read that it is a treatable syndrome known as adult growth growth hormone deficiency. We're getting so many different things that move it away from just purely a psychological problem. Certainly so. We know that several genetic studies have shown that there are four genetic deficiencies in patients with fibromyalgia. Polymorphisms that code for the expression of the serotonin 2A receptor, the serotonin transporter, the dopamine D4 receptor, and the catecholomethyltransferase protein are abnormal in very high amounts in patients with fibromyalgia. 
Dr. Richard Gracely, a rheumatologist at the University of Michigan, did a very elegant neuroimaging study that showed that patients with fibromyalgia had increased sensitivity or central sensitization in parts of the brain that are involved in the processing of painful afferent stimuli, such as the superior temporal gyrus and the insular cortex. So there is beginning to be a confluence of information, both by neuroimaging studies and by genetic studies and family go aggregate studies that show that this really is a standalone illness. In terms, really quickly, of laboratory workup, if you ask 10 rheumatologists about what type of labs they get, you may get 10 different answers, but I think they all agree that a SED rate is very, very important. A CBC, a basic big seven or electrolyte panel, and thyroid functioning studies. Some rheumatologists will get a vitamin D level to rule out osteomalacia, and of course our listeners in Connecticut may want to consider a Lyme titer as part of that laboratory workup. Let's talk a little bit about a theory that keeps popping up, and you mentioned it. It's called the theory of central sensitization, something that happens in the spinal cord where people are more sensitive than other people to the transmission of pain. This is very interesting. Could you explain that? Well, basically, we know very little about it. Whenever we say something is polygenic and multifactorial, that's kind of a rationalization that we don't know the exact answer. But we are beginning to find out things that we didn't know about 10 years ago. Basically, we found out with several CSF studies that there are increased levels of three nasty, noxious neurotransmitters, glutamate, substance P, which is tachykinin, it's neurokinin A, and norepinephrine in the CSF of patients that had fibromyalgia. So that leads us to believe that there is an exaggerated release of these nasty noxious neurotransmitters in the dorsal horn cells in the spinal column, which actually points out, which leads to an increased pain sensitivity in the superior temporal gyrus and insular cortex. That leads us, that was a critical amount of information that led us to be able to target putative pharmacotherapeutic treatments for this disease based on that understanding. If we were, for example, to develop a drug that had the ability to close down the calcium channels in those dorsal horn cells, then we would have a decreased release of those nasty, noxious neurotransmitters. Accordingly, if we were to be able to send down a descending inhibitory signal down the spinal thalamic tract, that would also help quieten down the activity down there, which is leading to the phenotype that we call fibromyalgia. And that leads, of course, then to the most interesting comment that people often ask me. They say, all these drugs that you are treating me with, they're all antidepressants. How's that so? Well, that that absolutely goes right along with it, which leads us to talk about what does work and what doesn't work in fibromyalgia. First of all, we want to talk a little bit about non-pharmacologic treatment. There have been many studies that shows that weight training not high-impact aerobic exercise, recumbent bikes, elliptical trainers, water aerobics, so strength training and or those, high, those non-high-impact aerobic exercises have a very large effect size in treating fibromyalgia. Also, many of our psychologists and LCSWs will be very pleased and validated to know that cognitive behavioral therapy is very important for the treatment of fibromyalgia. Many of our fibromyalgia patients have core maladaptive assumptions, errors in judgments, selective abstractions, which lead to an assumption that they're not going to be able to do certain things with their fibromyalgia. So CBT, strength training, aerobic exercise, very, very important and should not be minimized in terms of talking about treatment of fibromyalgia. Non-steroidals, well, unless you have a comorbid osteoarthritis, 
Non-steroidals have very limited utility in the treatment of fibromyalgia. Tricyclic antidepressants, we alluded to the meta-analysis a couple of minutes ago that Dr. Leslie Arnold did that showed that while they improve sleep, and we know that Elevil will improve sleep, in many cases it's not very effective for treating the comorbid symptoms. Opioids have a very mixed picture. There was a very famous methadone study that was done about 10 years ago with patients with fibromyalgia who were placed on flexibly dosed methadone for a period of one year. While it worked great for the first three or four months, by the end of the year, many of our patients, although not all of them, had just as much pain as evidenced by their visual analog scale on methadone as they did before they were ever placed on their first dose of it. So while some patients do very well, other patients don't appear to do quite as well. There's a Schedule II drug called Nucenta, which is actually chemically related to tramadol, which may have some utility. It's also a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Muscle relaxants, with the exception of cyclobenzaprine, or a drug that we call Flexeril, have very limited utility in the treatment of fibromyalgia. Flexeril works because it's a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Indeed, cyclobenzaprine is a tricyclic antidepressant. SSRIs can be very useful for treating the comorbid anxiety and depression, but they do not have that noradrenergic quality, which is very important for sending down or facilitating that descending inhibitory signal that's necessary to quieten down the dorsal horn cells and lead to the decreased pain. That's very important because for many of our psychiatrists and psychiatric nurse practitioners, they will see patients who are presenting with a primary complaint to them of depression. So how they choose their antidepressant can not only treat the presenting symptom, the depression, but also the real overlying rubric that we call fibromyalgia pain too as well. Anticonvulsants or anti-epileptics, for the most part, don't work very well, with the exception of norontin or gabapentin or Lyrica or pregabalin, which are our alpha-2 voltage-gated calcium channel antagonists. They're particularly good about decreasing the pain because they decrease the release of the calcium into the dorsal horn cell, so they decrease the release of those nasty, noxious neurotransmitters. Those drugs are also particularly good about improving the delta sleep or the stage four sleep in those patients, so I choose to give those drugs all at one dose about an hour before bedtime, and they also treat the comorbid anxiety. Our noradrenergic antidepressants, there are two that have FDA approval. There's one called milnasopran by Forest Laboratories. The brand name is Savella, and the other one is called duloxetine by Lilly Laboratories, and that drug is called Cymbalta. Those drugs have particularly good efficacy because they're both very noradrenergic antidepressants, so they're quite good. So effective pharmacotherapy of this syndrome includes both. Not either, but both an alpha-2 delta ligand and a noradrenergic antidepressant. Dr. James Woods is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Tennessee, and we've been talking about many aspects of fibromyalgia, its interplay between psychiatry and general medicine, some of the problems that we face in understanding it, and some of the real successes that we have come across over the years in being better able to treat it and certainly understand it. Dr. Woods, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. It's been a pleasure. Have a good day, sir.